must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Yeah, and, and guys, something that I've heard in the past, I know that other clinicians have kind of brought this up, is that sometimes when patients have compression garments on, they report them not feeling comfortable at all, I don't want to wear them. So assuming, of course, that this patient is appropriate for compression garments, how do you guys manage um, you know, that and problem solve to make the appropriate modifications to make sure that the garment was sized and at the right amounts for that particular patient? I think I fundamentally, I think that there is a correct compression garment for everybody. It's just a matter of finding the correct, you know, compression garment for that person. Many times people would lean towards pre-manufactured, like ready-to-wear compression garments. That's not always the optimal compression garment for that patient. And sometimes that can really be a big difference. Um, if you want to save money and you're going to a prefabricated compression garment, of course, it will never be as adequate and never be fitting as well as a custom-made compression garment for the patient. I think it depends again on the diagnosis of the patient. It depends on the shape of their limb. It depends on a lot of different variables and oftentimes the tendency is to go with something that's already pre-manufactured and that may or may not be the right thing for that patient. Um, you can try it. You can um, go to a ready-to-wear garment if it doesn't fit well because the size is such that it doesn't fit that person. Um, there's yet another brand that patients might be using. So there's a, a large variety of of ready-to-wear garments, but at one point or another, if the garment is not doing what it's supposed to do, that is containing the swelling, if the garment is uncomfortable or the patient has donning issues, sometimes you need to then make that appropriate switch and go to a custom garment, even though it costs more, it is more appropriate for that person who has, if you will, failed the trial of a ready-to-wear garment. That, that's kind of like an approach that we would take. And then there's clearly patients whose limbs are so disproportionate, where the ankle may be very skinny and the calf may be very large, or the thigh may be extremely large in comparison to the lower leg. And those patients should go into a custom compression garment right away uh, to save them from the agony of you know those inappropriate trials. Does that make sense? Yeah, I completely agree. And 
Um, just some specific questions to build on that that I ask patients. Well, first, I always look at them in the garment. So um, to make sure to see, so I can see how it's fitting them and whatever problems they are experiencing, I can actually visualize it myself. Um, and and you know, I ask them if they were if they were fitted by a certified fitter. That's important because a lot of times, especially in regards to these uh, off-the-shelf garments that Gunter is explaining about, they you know, if the patient wears a size large pants, like they're going to go buy a size large compression sock at CVS, and that doesn't really work. Um, and because it's it has to be, even the off-the-shelf garments have to be fitted for the patient and utilizing the smallest part of the ankle and the largest part of the calf and then sizing it based on the sizing chart for that specific garment. So it's not as simple as just sort of picking something off the shelf and um, and they really should be fitted for it. I ask um, if they wear it every day, if they've washed it. Um, sometimes if, um, if they wear it one day and then they don't wear it for a few days and then they wear it again, it's probably not fitting because maybe their swelling is fluctuating. Um, the compression garments aren't really designed to be worn when the patient is swollen. The, the, what we intend to happen is that the patient's swelling will be reduced via therapy, and then they will be fitted for a garment once the swelling is effectively reduced. And so if they are fit appropriately when the swelling is effectively reduced with the garment that is right for them, it should be comfortable. It shouldn't dig or cut their circulation off, um, and it should it should contain the swelling and not allow for that refill by the end of the day. So I think there's a lot um, of things to be considered, and and I, I agree with Gunter that it, it, it depends upon how severe the swelling is. If the patient has any degree of fibrosis in their tissue, they most often will need a custom compression garment. Um, whereas the more vascular patients who don't have significant, that significant of swelling um, and who don't have fibrotic tissue they, and who have a normally shaped limb, they can sometimes get away with that ready-to-wear garment. So it all kind of depends. I think, I think um, this is where it, it, you really need to be, the patient needs to be assessed by not only a fitter at the DME company, but by the therapist and the therapist needs to be part of picking which garment is the best for that patient um, because DME providers will have their own certified fitters, but they're not necessarily therapists. So I think um, getting the opinion of, of somebody who knows what they're talking about and um, Gunter, we can, this is probably a whole nother topic, but that kind of brings to my mind this idea of virtual appointments. So if if you are you know a skilled a, a skilled provider and you can tell what type of garment by looking at that patient's leg, um, that I, I feel like that might be a helpful thing to be able to provide, especially for people in more rural settings that don't have access to people who know but like us who are trained therapists. It's probably a whole nother topic. But and yes, yes, we could talk for a long time, but. One more point, I think that we have to recognize there are many different manufacturers who are competing with each other, and that's a good thing for us, and it's a good thing for the patient. And all of these manufacturers um, are eager to work with therapists in the field through FaceTime, through you know telephone calls and stuff like that. So if anyone is not 
very experienced in picking the correct garment, make contact with the manufacturer. Uh, they have people in the field, they would FaceTime with you um, and then determine the appropriate way to go. And I think we need to utilize that. The, the, the tragedy of our time is that no one has time and you as a clinician need to find the time to reach out to those manufacturers because you can you can expect a great deal of help from them and that will save the patient a lot of agony and and uh, perhaps you know finances in purchasing the correct garment right off the bat no that makes a whole lot of sense and you know and guys i recognize this is again going to go back to um, the different types and all those different factors that you both had mentioned and discussed in your prior answers but in general, what's, what is your guys's or how do you figure the protocol for how long they should keep their garments on? I think that depends on the diagnosis. If you have an orthopedic patient, they would be in compression for a short period of time. And then once the swelling has resolved and they are back to, I want to say, normal function, they wouldn't have a need for a continuation of the compression. Vascular patient, and Kristen alluded a lot of times, the patient is a uh, vascular patient, they have venous insufficiency. And by providing the treatment, you're not curing the venous insufficiency. It's still there. You're managing the swelling, and the patient should um, get used to that compression. In fact, the compression should feel so good that they want to wear it on a daily basis, take care of their garments appropriately so it fits every time they put it on, and um, and that will most likely be for the rest of their lives. Um, you can prevent a lot of um, things with compression. You can uh, prevent discoloration in the lower extremities. You can prevent venous ulcers in the lower extremity if the patient just notices or learns about the significance of compression on a daily basis. And for patients with lymphedema, even the ones who have had surgical treatment for lymphedema, compression is a lifelong um, um, application. So they should be uh, educated that the compression is is part of their lifestyle um, and if they get used to wearing the compression and once they have the correct compression garment they will not fight it they will actually use it as something that feels good that helps them to prevent swelling by the time evening comes around and um, they will actually feel in some ways naked without the compression that's that's kind of like the place where you want to get your patient to, that they are not fighting you every step of the way with the compression, but find them the garment that they can use. Because for many patients with the chronic um, vascular issues, venous insufficiencies, or lymphedema, it's, it's pretty much a lifelong thing. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of it hinges on what you both had kind of mentioned, finding that right fit garment that's right for that person. And then that seems to set a lot of the other things forward in motion on the optimal way. And you know, I, I'm just curious because something I see all the time being in a primarily orthopedic-based setting, you know, we think of just traditional orthopedic swelling, we think about you know, icing, retrograde massage, uh, retrograde massage, excuse me, and some even use kinesio taping as well to help with that. Um, I'm just curious because I'd love to hear kind of what your guys' thoughts are because I know you see the things a little bit differently. What are your thoughts on using these other things like ice, retrograde massage, kinesio taping, to manage just regular, just regular swelling. I know not necessarily for lymphatic, like lymphedema specifically, 
but even just for traditional like outpatient post-op swelling or you know any kinds of swelling like that well i think there's um several things here that that are important and that is are we seeing in session change so any any intervention that we do we should be able to see in session change right um, but even better yet, we should be able to see intercession change, so in between session change. So if you are doing X, Y, and Z, you're doing your ice, your retrograde massage, your KP, if you're doing all this fancy things, maybe ESIM, to try to treat this persistent swelling, um, and you, you know, a, a perfect example of the game ready. We take a pre-game ready measurement, we take a post-game ready measurement, it, the, the joint or the limb came down two centimeters and we go, yay, and we document it in our chart. And then the patient comes back and they're just as swollen. Um, so really, was that helpful? Um, maybe it was helpful, and, and, you know, in terms of the game ready, maybe it was helpful in terms of reducing some inflammation in the joint, um, especially if they're post-op. Um, but if the swelling is outside the joint capsule and it's really not an inflammatory thing, it's more of a... Um, swelling that has come outside the joint capsule and has more of a chronic systemic component to it, not, not necessarily systemic, but um, maybe lymphatic or vascular component to it, um, you really, in my opinion, cannot ignore the need for compression. So I think that all of those things are nice supplements to treatment occasionally if performed correctly, but if you don't, if you, so say you did all those things and the patient had a nicely fit compression garment that helped manage the swelling in between your sessions or within your session, there's going to be a much uh, better intercession change and it's the, your, the treatments that you've performed are going to be much more effective. So I think, um, you, you know, going back to being able to do that, that uh, good differential diagnostic assessment, really understanding what is the nature of the swelling. Is it just joint swelling or is it outside the joint? And could some of these other techniques be helpful in helping it um, get reabsorbed? Um, and understanding if there's any underlying components that might be contributing to that lack of resorption. You know, asking those questions about, you know, if they have, even if, if they're there for an ankle sprain and, it's, and the swelling's not resolving, well, maybe they had a history of pelvic cancer with radiation a few years ago, and but you wouldn't know because they forgot to put it on their history and you didn't ask. So it's just, you know, a, a matter of asking good questions and um, selecting evidence-based treatments, but then also uh, understanding that at, at some point when it comes to persistent swelling, you can't ignore the need for good fit compression and mm -hmm. possibly MLD too. Yeah, I mean, one is, as Kristen was alluding to, uh, the diagnosis and then the stage of the swelling. Is it acute? Is it is it subacute? Is it chronic? So once you know those things, then you can tune into what you need to do in order to address the swelling most appropriately. And to me, many of those things like, you know, ice kinesiotaping or any such thing are adjuncts to the treatment that we do. If a therapist who is not lymphedema therapy trained learns a few basic MLD skills from someone who is trained, 
that's great for the orthopedic population. It's great for the acute swellings. It's great for a lot of things that are not lymphedema. Once you go into the lymphedema, then therapists should, should seek more training and they should build their skills to where they can serve that population. But a lot of the things that we now just talked about, the ice and the retrograde massage and the uh, K-tape would be an adjunct to what we do in lymphedema and in the acute swelling that may just be um, an, an okay thing to do. Yeah, no, I mean, that completely makes sense. And I know diving into, you guys have both mentioned, of course, needing that higher level with you know, manual lymph drainage and such. But, you know, I, we, something we haven't really talked a whole lot at this time about formally is regarding evidence to being one of the, one of the three pillars of, you know, of evidence-based practice. And, you know, so what do we know from an evidence standpoint regarding, you know, the ability of, you know, manual lymph drainage to decrease swelling in those with a lymphedema component and persistent swelling? Like, what does the evidence say that we know about how effective we're doing with these folks? I like to go first on this one <laughs> because that question comes up a lot. It's up a, a whole lot in our field because there seems to be so little empirical evidence uh, which you know proves that MLD is is very beneficial for a patient. But then when we look at the clinical outcomes of our treatment, if people are committed to doing the manual lymph drainage and the compression therapy uh, correctly on patients, the, the, the clinical outcomes and the reduction in volume and the uh, you know, uh, regaining functional ability for the patient is undeniable. Um, the problem in research with manual lymph drainage is that it would take a very large comprehensive study where, you know, manual lymph drainage, first of all, there is very big differences from one practitioner to the next practitioner in terms of manual lymph drainage, even if they have learned it from the same training place and school. That's my experience in our training. We have, let's say, 16 to 20 people in our class. At the end, they all do well, but some do better than others. And then um, as they develop their skills working on patients, some therapists are really doing well and others they just kind of like um, their manual lymph drainage skills deteriorate a little bit over time and now you're not comparing um, the same thing anymore it's not a pill that you can give to the patient and then observe and three weeks later um, check that out um, it, it would take a, a very comprehensive and long-term study with a lot of work involved and we also know that you know, just looking at our patient populations, when you do a, a trial on patients with lymphedema, just getting a homogeneous group together, because there's so many variables um, in the actual presentation of the lymphedema, the patient's age, the patient's yeah, diagnosis and comorbidities. And after all, some patients are predisposed genetically to getting lymphedema where others are not. So um, the empirical evidence is lacking. And what always frustrates me is when I hear about clinical trials like 
There was one done in England not too long ago, last year, and that was published in a very prestigious journal in England. And the uh, title of the article was Comparing Manual Earth Drainage with, and Compression with Compression Alone. And is there an added benefit to manual earth drainage? Now, unfortunately, that article never really explained what the manual lymph drainage that the person was doing was really about how long it's been. Uh, there's a big difference if you treat the patient for 20 minutes or 40 minutes. There is a big difference if you use very little pressure to the adequate pressure and such. And so there's just in my world too many variables to, to actually create a very large um, study that would give us the empirical evidence about manual lymph drainage being effective. And maybe with the newer Indesign and Green studies, that's a imaging technique that has just now been popular for the last few years, we will see more opportunity to do studies like that. But what um, is so difficult is to get, get those patient groups compared to each other where clinically, I mean, I can show you results on pictures before and after, and it would just, you know, surprise you how effective those treatments are when combined in the right way and applied on the patient in the right frequency. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a key. Um, and many, if not all, of the research studies that compare manual lymph drainage with compression um, MLD and compression versus compression alone, they have so many shortcomings that I would not pay too much attention to that. And it seems like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'd love to hear what your guys' thoughts, but it, to me, it seems like that's a huge topic with so many other things, not it, just in the physical therapy realm too. And we're looking at researching so many different interventions to exercise, manual therapy, you know, I mean, the list just goes on and on because there's so many other factors in play that it's sometimes hard to get the best accurate overall viewpoint of it. I mean, yes, there are systematic reviews, but we also have to recognize that those have limits as well because there's only going to be using the trials that they have. So I think that there's, you know, it's kind of a kind of a dance in motion, shall we say. You know, at the Institute of Clinical Excellence, um, we're big on the concept of and not or. So, you know, we have, we have all of these, these um, clinical practice guidelines and things that help guide our decision-making process as clinicians. Um, and, and yes, we want to use the evidence to do the best thing. Um, but it doesn't necessarily always mean we have to do this or this. Um, it, what if we could do this and this? What if I could treat the post-op knee patient and incorporate some of the components of swelling management um, that I have? through my training, what that, the result is going to be better for that patient. So kind of adopting this mentality of like, it's not a matter of doing one thing or the other thing um, as, a, as it is um, to use our best judgment, pull the research, what the research says, um, but also just be open to um, combining some forms of treatment for optimal care for each, you know, individualized for each patient. Um, maybe not every single patient needs the MLD and the bandaging, 
but in a lot of people, the combination of the two is going to be more beneficial than just the one. So I think just having that mentality um, is what I try to do and, you know, in looking at the patient holistically and, and looking at the big picture and looking at how much time I have and combining all of that information with what is going to um, result in the optimal, in the optimal results for that patient. No, I, I completely agree. I think that's a very, very important point. And I think that's a very valid way to say it. And that kind of gives in a little bit now more to kind of the next thought of this here is that, you know, earlier on, we had kind of talked about, you know, so many different, different presentations and so many different variables to consider when treating persistent swelling. And, you know, I guess my, one of the big questions I want to ask you guys is, you know, as a lot of clinicians now probably don't work in that specialty setting so much and don't have that specialized training um, regarding when to refer versus when not to refer to a certified uh, practitioner for persistent swelling. Like, what are some things that should kind of point that person to be like, you know what, you should go see this person versus, you know what, I could maybe manage this more easily myself. Like, what, do, what are your guys' two cents on that? Well, I think some of the edema management skills um, should be taught to anyone who is doing rehabilitation, you know, medicine. Um, and I think that um, if you have a trained clinician in your area or you're working with a lymphedema certified clinician, any uh, physical therapist, occupational therapist could pick up some skills from them to do some, um, I want to say, non-complicated uh, orthopedic swelling and with a little bit of manual lymph drainage that you learn on the side and maybe a little bit of compression skills you can serve that population when it comes to the comorbid patients that present with multifactorial edemas when it comes to that venous insufficiency patient where compression is really important when it comes to lymphedema patients those patients should all be referred to a certified lymphedema therapist because even though um, lymphedema is in the scope of anyone's practice when they become a physical therapist or occupational therapist, uh, it should be recognized that lymphedema and those core morbid patients or the ones even with pretty straightforward vascular disease, venous insufficiency, should be seen by someone who is, um, who is trained in it um, to give them the best treatment they deserve. Yeah, I agree. Because I know you both had kind of in the pre-show kind of had this discussion uh, back and forth regarding uh, what should be like, what should a non-trained therapist do versus what, you know, trained therapists should do. And I think that was a really interesting discussion. And, and, and Gunther, you kind of had touched on the big take-home part of it in kind of your last statement there a little bit. And, you know, and, and I guess, you know, Gunther, since you've been teaching this material for such a long period of time, what do you notice that most newer trained therapists in, you know, CLT and manual lymph drainage, what do they have the most difficulty with learning and performing, especially initially and as they progress? I think uh, multiple thoughts on this one. <laughs> For one, I think they struggle a little bit if they go back to a setting where they don't have an established program or a therapist, they lack the mentorship they have a lot of questions and we try to be here for them, but we're still remote. If I train someone in Pittsburgh and I'm in Colorado, I can only help them over the phone or by FaceTime or some other um, digital media. Uh, but 
I think mentorship is very important. People struggle with that a little bit if they come back and they are the only therapist um, in their hospital setting or private practice setting. I also think it's really important that we teach them to navigate these limitations in our healthcare system um, and set them off on a path to success because oftentimes it's the insurances that limit treatments for patients and a new therapist may give in too easily without asking for more visits. Sometimes it's a management, it's a system that they're working in that don't allow them to have the adequate time to treat patients um, and oftentimes restrict them from seeing the patient often enough to be successful. So I think that these young therapists or people who are newly trained in the field of um, CDT, manual lymph drainage compression, they need to be supported. Um, and uh, we try to be there to mentor them through their first few weeks and even months and sometimes years of clinical practice. And we need to teach them on how to best navigate those limitations in our healthcare systems. And we are doing that. Uh, we are doing that by talking them through some of the stuff that they need to share with their supervisors and, and management. So when they do get home, they will be able to use the skills the way they should be used on a patient um, that requires it and not be discouraged by short visits or um, not seeing the patient often enough. I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, and, and Kristen, do you feel that, you know, obviously you went through the program um, a few years back. Is that pretty, would you tend to agree with kind of those thoughts that Gunter had? And was that similar to kind of how you, what your experience was after you graduated, after you went through that program? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest challenges for me um, over the years have been, and, and a lot of this depends on the system that you work in, but um, there's a lot of of activities that are required by, from lymphedema therapists that are non-reimbursable but necessary tasks. Um, and that includes getting supplies, figuring all that out. Are you going to have supplies stocked in your clinic? Are you going to special order supplies? But regardless of which way you do that, you, you're going to have to spend time filling out order forms, getting scripts so that they're covered, um, contacting the physician to sign the script and send it to the medical supply company. Um, measuring for the compression garments is not a reimbursable service for a PT. Uh, calling to follow up, calling the patient to follow up on their compression garments or calling the manufacturing company to find out where the garments are because they were supposed to be here two weeks ago. There's so many um, side tasks that are required of lymphedema therapists that take up a lot of time if you don't have support staff that's that's doing that for you. Um, so, and, and generally companies don't like that because um, it's not productive. Like you're constantly busy. And when you're with a patient, you're doing a lot of manual therapy or one-on-one -on -one treatment. And then when you're not with the patient, um, there's your time is being swallowed up by all these other tasks. So it, it makes you kind of look unproductive on paper, which is a challenge I think for clinicians. And then um, you know, some companies are requiring double, triple booking, regardless of if it's a lymphedema patient. So um, that kind of forces a the therapist to modify the treatment 
um, and potentially, uh, like Gunter had touched on, like maybe performing a, a sub-maximal or sub-par treatment for the patient, um, given the, the constraints of the system and the constraints of the um, scheduling. So that, those are, those, those things alone are enough to make therapists not want to do this type of treatment. Um, I don't have those constraints anymore um, in terms of the booking because I do only do cash-based um, practice with my patients now, and I have a full hour to treat to do whatever type of treatment I feel that they need um, or more time if we need it. So I am no longer constrained by that system, but those, those constraints are very real to um, a lot of the therapists that are out there trying to treat in this, in this, um, this type of treatment. Yeah, and not to, you know, certainly not to step on anyone's toes because I think people in rehab, people who do what we do are generally very committed. But I just want to second to what, um, what Kristen was saying now. It really takes an extra level of commitment to treat patients with lymphedema. But it comes back to you, Kristen. I hope you agree that Patients who are well treated for their chronic swelling, they will give so much back to you. And it's not just, you know, um, financial compensation. It's just uh, when you do the right thing by the patient, um, it will come back to you in so many different ways. And I found ha having done the lymphedema work in, in, in so many years, I think that um, you know, you get a lot of satisfaction out of the treatment. I want to add one more thing, which is really important. I think people with chronic swelling, chronic edema, people with established lymphedema that has not been treated for a period of time, we need to remember that those patients are not only physically impacted, but they are really psychologically impacted and emotionally impacted by their swelling. We talked a lot in the last hour about the physical impact of the swelling and that swelling should be treated to increase functional ability and such. But treating patients with chronic swelling and rehabilitating them to have a more or better, much better quality of life is undescribable. Sometimes you get so much back from your patient because you're going that extra mile and you're dedicated to what you're doing that I think um, it, it does take an extra level of dedication to be a lymphedema certified therapist and do the job well. But I would argue that it will come back to you fivefold when you do it well. I, I completely agree. I think it's, it's an extremely rewarding, it's, it's an extremely challenging space to be in, but it's also extremely rewarding. I think, you know, a lot of the things that we do in rehab, you can't physically see the results like right in front of your eyes. And with lymphedema treatment, you can. And that's uh, a really, that's very impactful for both the clinician and the patient. Um, and I think just because of the nature of it being a chronic disease that they're going to have to deal with and manage the rest of their life, then you become their resource. You know, it's a little different than somebody that has patellofemoral pain and you, you know, fix their knee pain and they don't need you anymore. Um, with this, it's, um, you know, you're going to be their constant as long as you do, do right by them. Like Gunter said, you know, you're, you're going to be, um, their guide throughout to navigate the management of this potentially for years to come. And that's a really neat um, 
resource to be able to be for someone. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.